struts like John Wayne, resembles Jim Carrey, and dresses like he's visually impaired. Because he is Insight. Insight with Mark Farrell on the Progressive Radio Network. 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 Ah, yes. Thursday morning in New York City, and it is a beautiful one. Hello, my friends. How are you? My name is Mark Farrell. The show's Insights on the Progressive Radio Network. Well, if you love music and you love any of the bands like Guns N' Roses, Backstreet Boys, Cheap Trick, Alice Cooper, Sheryl Crow, Dashboard Confessional, Def Leppard. Yeah, these are great bands, right? Celine Dion, Elton John, Barry Manilow, Ricky Martin, John Mayer, Paul McCartney, and so many more. And chances are very, very high that you know our guests. Yes, Nigel Dick is an award-winning film director and producer. He has shot over 650 productions in 28 countries. Yeah, music videos are his thing. Videos, shorts, TV spots. This guy is a gem. I mean, Nigel's also a musician, a writer, and a cyclist. Yeah, I think it's safe to say Mark Farrell's got a man crush on Nigel Dick because... A lot of our passions in life are aligned, and uh, he's got a keen interest in seemingly everything. Nigel's a a real renaissance man, and I think what makes him excel in his job the most is he's a fan. He loves music, he loves rock and roll, and of course he loves making an incredible product. So Nigel Dick, you're going to meet him in a few minutes. We have a nice lengthy interview, a compelling, insightful, and fun interview with Nigel Dick, part one coming up in a few minutes, but I want to talk about the Olympics before you meet Nigel. I was torn about watching the games for obvious reasons. The humanitarian aspects alone. Yeah, well, I remember even years ago thinking when uh, China was awarded the bid, and I remember reading and seeing horrific video of them tearing people out of their homes in the middle of the night. These are the people who wouldn't go um, willingly because they were told they have to leave their home and they're like, no, we're not going. They wanted them to leave their homes because they wanted to bulldoze their homes to make room for the Olympic Games. Whatever the venue they were building at that time, at that site, they wanted those residents to vacate. So the atrocities go from a mere evicting people illegally, dragging them out of their houses in the middle of the night to people missing. You know, dictatorship on all levels. And recently, obviously, everything they've been doing has been in the news. And I just can't wrap my arms around this. At the same time, though, I find myself in a conundrum because I love sport. I love the competition. And I love seeing athletes live and experience everything they've worked so entirely hard for, most of them for their entire lives. To have that come to fruition for them is just something you can hardly put into words because it's magical. And for them to be cheated of viewership, they don't know how many people are watching. The reality is there's hardly anyone in the stands due to COVID. And I was reading something the other day and some of the ice skaters were like, well, listen, here's the reality. I mean, this is how we practice. This is how we live our lives with no one in the stands because, you know, if you're an ice skater, you're in a cinder block building on a cold rink of ice and there's no one in the stands cheering you on. You're just doing your thing either to the 
quiet of the venue or to music. So for them, it's not that different. But anyway, uh, Chloe Kim, she took the gold last night in women's half pipe. Yeah, man, good for her. Two-time medalist, gold medalist. She rocks. Great for her. Great spirit, uh, great personality, and I'm really psyched for her. Tonight, Sean White's final attempt. 35 and kicking butt. 35. Good for him. Sean White hopefully goes for gold tonight and gets gold tonight. And Nathan Chen, man, good for him. He won gold for the uh, men's individual event. And just, you know, the three of these. I mean, there's so many different athletes involved. And I'm psyched for the games now and psyched for the Paralympics, aside from the political and humanitarian aspect. But um, I find myself, I don't want to deprive my children. I got a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old, and they're both into sports. But they're also into decency and treating people, you know, the way people should be treated. And they're actually very astute for 12 and 9 on a world global political platform. Because, yes, myself and my wife don't hide the atrocities. Obviously, we don't tell them all the things that they shouldn't know at their age. But they're exposed to what they should be exposed to at their ages because, you know, you shouldn't live a life of blinders, even for kids. You know, the whole world is not a great place. There are mean people. So I have to be a realist with kids. And, I, you know, I think most parents should be. All parents, I should be to an extent. I think parents, not all parents have the capacity to be real with their children like that. Anyway, so, of course, it's a personal choice, but uh, I find myself torn, and even the kids were torn, like, Dad, maybe we shouldn't watch this. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but don't you want to support Chloe and Sean White and all the other athletes? So, anyway, so let's get into it. (laughs) Nigel Dick, just a great guy. had the pleasure of meeting him in Denver when I was hosting an amazing event called Shine Music Festival, the first of its kind festival anywhere in the world for persons with disability. The reality is it was about inclusion. And the person I had the pleasure of meeting about 100 feet back from the stage, dead center, behind a camera, was Nigel Dick. Nigel, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, my friend. I am a big fan of your work long before I ever realized it was Nigel's work. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. How's to everything here. in Colorado? Uh, chilly this morning, though it's warmer than it has been. So now I imagine growing up in England, you were pretty far ahead of the curve music wise and music video wise. I remember talking with Ken Burns and uh, I was under the misnomer that, you know, videos were created in the seventies and eighties, but far be it. Um, And I believe they were probably surfacing much sooner in Europe. Well, I've worked for a punk record label in the late mid late seventies. I started in 77 and they were making music videos pretty actually 78 was when the first video started coming through um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which was that if you released a record simultaneously around the world, you couldn't afford or make practically happen a band to be available to do TV shows in Australia, New York, Paris, London, Munich, all in the same week of release. So having a music video that you could send to your licensees around the world meant that they could put uh, a visual representation of your artist on a TV show in their home country without having to ship the band in. So it saved them money. It was practically very useful. 
And so by the time that MTV came around in 82 or 83, uh, many companies in the UK already had a big stash of videos, which is mm, why say, sure. your, your Duran Durans, Def Leppard, your Rhythmics, all those acts did very, very well when uh, MTV started because they had a huge backlog of videos. You know, I was wondering about that, Nigel. When MTV launched, I actually said to myself, how did all this material exist already? Because I don't remember how I knew, but I guess I knew, read it or heard it, uh, because maybe Mark Goodman told me <laughs> that there was a cache material in existence already. And, you know, what a great thing. You you have this platform, this instant platform, MTV. But, of course, you had the, the Gong, Don Kirshners of the world and Soul Train and things like that. And certainly the European versions where they had the platform to show and to get uh, pop stars onto TV shows, uh, The Tonight Show, et cetera, and your version over there in England. Um, and what a great way to just excite a culture about music. Well, certainly in the UK, where I grew up most of my life, I also lived in Europe a lot, but there was a weekly show called Top of the Pops. So if you got on Top of the Pops on Thursday night with your group, or you, you were an solo artist, hopefully the kids would go out on Friday and Saturday and buy the record. And by Tuesday, which is when the new chart was released, your record would jump up the charts. So it was really, I mean, that one show, which was shown all across the UK, became the, you know, that was the most important thing you could do when you released a record. And I watched that show religiously from its first showing, I think, I think it was January the 1st, 64 or 65. Wow. For the, for the rest Great. of my growing up until um, in, until I moved to America. I mean, at 7.20 or whenever it was on Thursday night, anybody who was interested in music watched that show from the north of Scotland to the south of England. Nigel, is there one video in particular that still stands out after all these years? What, one performance that was shown? Sure. Well, mostly the show was live wow. in the studio. So if you were if you and I were in a band and we we just released a new record and we're out about to go and play some dates, we would make sure that we had Wednesday night free for the sort of five or six weeks that we were going out on the road because that's when Top of the Pops was recorded. So you wanted to be available to do a gig at Top of the Pops because it was the most important promotional tool. Um, and uh, my own personal joy, I was a huge fan of Top of the Pops, is that I actually got to appear on Top of the Pops four times singing with, ver with various bands that I was promoting when they didn't have, in two occasions, a bass player. And one occasion I played the tuba. And on, tuba. The, fourth, on the fourth occasion, I was dressed as a snowman. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. No, no. And that was your favorite role, right? Mr. Frosty. Uh, that was actually my <laughs> least favorite because yeah. the, there were three other snowmen who had dance moves down, but they hadn't bothered. I got the, the call, you know, like six hours before the show because I was in the musicians union. So I showed up and of course they had all the routine and I didn't. So I just had to sort of fake it. And of course, that's what made it very funny to watch. Neither. Did you also sing backup vocals on the Pops Top Pops once? Uh, never sang backup vocals, oh. uh, just played. So, um, how and got, and got 65 pounds. 
<laughs> well, there you go. It's worth it. How important are established shots, opening shots for you? Because when I look at your work, I mean, some of them just really resonate and just pop right as the video starts. And if I think of uh, Britney Spears, oops, I did it again, or baby one more time when she's in school and you see the her foot tapping on the bottom of the desk, dot, 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 pans up. You see her tapping the pencil. Of course, all high scores are frustrated, they're bored, they're counting down in seconds. And of course, we're thinking that and you go right to the clock. We can almost hear the seconds going tick, 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 and wham, this seemingly high school girl, but far from it, takes off. Well, I mean, it's like any story, really. You, you don't want to bore people. You have to grab their attention as soon as you can. So, um, and especially when you're making a, a video, which is three or four minutes long, you don't have much time. Uh, it's a truism of making a film, you know, if you're making a feature film of have fun in the first 90 seconds, because that's really the only time you have to have fun. That's the hook that point. point. Yeah, because from that point onwards, you need to be entertaining people. Um, certainly in both of those Britney videos that you mentioned, you're setting up the story. She's in a she's an impatient girl in class wants to get out and hang out with her friends and the little scene with the um uh the guys if he's in houston you know talking to the astronaut in uh, on mars you're setting up the story um you and want how... to let the, you want to let the audience know it's mars you want to let the audience know why he's not floating around um so he says yes gravitation device engaged or whatever he says so you're, you're just sort of laying the, the ground mm. rules for the next three or four minutes. Was that a bit of a nod to MTV as well? In what way? Because the astronaut planting the flag with the MTV flag. For somehow, somehow when I see that, I see a bit of a parallel. I wasn't sure. Was it a little bit of a wink? No, no, not really. I mean, Brittany just said to me, I want, I want to shoot a video on Mars with a handsome spaceman, and I don't want there to well, be a rocket. <laughs> I so, think it was very cleverly pulled off with mission control. And obviously this guy's getting heated in a good way. He's getting into it as yeah, the audience yeah. is. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you, you just want to lay the groundwork hmm. for what's happening in the next three or four minutes. Yeah. Well, you, you do that so eloquently and Thank so you. seemingly effortlessly, if you think of, GNR, Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child, um, you're there. You're part of the crew, seemingly, because the grittiness, the uh, the vibe, you can almost smell like the venue, like the dust and the cold air in this factory. You see the setup, you see the sidebar conversations with staff. And yes, of course, it's all maybe contrived, but it looks real. And you see, of course, you know, Slash getting into his riff. And then, of course, you see the poignant, Axel, just grab that mic stand, you know, his, his, his liberate signature move and just goes into it. And it's just right there. You just, whoosh, you're lost. You got us. <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing is you have to, you can't make Axel do a Britney, you know, you, you have to find what it is that makes that artist tick. And one thing I've always said when I've been shooting somebody 
is that if I give you a piece of direction which you feel is not appropriate to you as an artist, you have to let me know because the most important thing that comes out of the video is a little bit of who you are. So if I ask Brittany to do something which is really something that, I don't know, Celine would do or vice versa, I want them to say, no, that's that I wouldn't do that. And that's great to know because then you can push in on what it is that makes that artist tick from a performance point of view. And that's what enthralls the viewer, you know, the record fan. Did you ever find yourself saying, wow, I must have a PhD after my name? Because you have to be part psychologist. I mean, to juggle all these different things, personalities, artists, record labels, other forms of talent to keep everyone happy to get the product that you were paid to do. Um, I try not to pat myself on the back <laughs> because if you do that, you'll disappear up your own orifice mm. very quickly. Sure. So it just, I mean, the more you do it, you, you just learn um, that, okay, there's a situation developing here. I need to um, solve the solution, you know, have come up with a solution or create a feeling where I can make the artist give of their best or whatever it is, or make the record company person quiet down or whatever it may be, because you perhaps you have 12 hours you know, you have 12 hours from walking through the door to leaving to get that piece in the can. Um, the Guns N' Roses video you mentioned, Sweet Child of Mine, was shot in one day. There's no like, well, tomorrow we'll focus in, you know, we got, we, there was some stuff today that we didn't get, so we'll get that tomorrow. You have 12 hours to get that thing in the can. And there's no going back for reshoots. Um, very occasionally you might get to go back and do something very, very occasionally. So you've got to figure, you've got to learn the, um, the techniques as to how to get, communicate with people very quickly. So would you consider that Nigel, a more of a straight ahead shoot? The sweet which, child? Which, sweet, uh, sweet child. child. Uh, well, there was lots of drama. Mm. Um, I mean, there off there always is, really. Sure, it's rock and um, roll, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, people think it's a lot about just pretty pictures, and there's an enormous amount of people management, as you say, behind the scenes. And um, eventually, as you get more experienced, you get you actually get tired and frustrated of certain. Uh, things which certain people tend to do and you just have to either block it out or go to them and say don't do this leave the set or do whatever it takes so I can get my job done today uh, and then we'll talk about it you know the details tomorrow mm. whatever but at some point you have to become a, an impatient a-hole you know yeah of course as well as an ambassador a goodwill ambassador because you yeah. have to evoke the best out of everyone that's on camera there so you can get that magic whether it's going to be seen in your eyes right there or it's going to appear to you in post but you need to get it yeah and the other thing is is that very often it doesn't turn out the way you want it to so you're like okay so this isn't going to work so i've got to come up with a solution now you know you you can't 
if if you find yourself working with somebody in front of the camera and they just cannot deliver the performance that you were hoping for, uh, you're wasting your time if you're going to try pushing that square wheel up a hill. You've now got to come up with a compromise and, and hopefully something which isn't a compromise, but which is a solution. Um, and sometimes you do that and sometimes you get very lucky and sometimes you realize that you just can't make this work. That's got to be a very tricky call to make, Nigel, because if you have a whole screenplay in mind for that 12-hour shoot and it's one day and you have obviously in your mind the uh, agenda, the schedule for the day, and then now you have to pivot, that could really work out for you or really throw you behind the eight ball. Well, I mean, um, one example, I did a video in Florida, the label said this video has to be shot in Florida. Uh, I'm not a Floridian by birth or by residence. Could have fooled me. <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm glad my accent is fooling you. And so we show up and, and discover, of course, that we've arrived in hurricane season. I've been told by the label that it has to be shot on the beach. So long story short, we're shooting our video on the beach in the morning, everything's sunny, everything's working out fabulously. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, we are hit by a torrential hurricane style storm. And I'm only halfway through the day. And by, by the time it starts getting dark, you know, we're, we've got five or six inches of rain, quite literally. Wow. So we had to take all the props off the beach there was a circular concrete hut on the parking lot where all our trucks were parked. We put everything, all the props from the beach inside the hut and turned it into a club. So the back half of the video, the last minute and a half of the video is in a disco, in a fake disco, which has a lot of seaweed and netting in it. <laughs> and, um, and nobody's ever rung me up to complain. You know, that's I mean, great. that's what you have to do. It's yeah. like, I can't. So stay on the beach with everybody looking like a drowned rat i have to find a solution nigel what was the conduit to get the storyline from the beach into the club did you obviously create that on the fly totally on the i mean it yeah. just drew a line in the figurative sand even though there was sand there <laughs> and said all right at the beginning of the second chorus we're going inside the club and we'll be in in inverted commas the club for the rest of the video and of course, everybody's in their swimwear and, you know, we don't have the clothes for a club. So as you say, we're making it up as you go along, but that's what you have to do. 1984, Band-Aid. Um, I mean, this is gold on every level, Nigel. Do they know it's Christmas? Uh, tell me about the phone call. Tell me about the pitch, uh, your idea to film all the artists arriving, which I think is still brilliant. And I get goosebumps every time. I watched that video because of the electricity, how palpable it must have been and how nothing like that had been done before. And you really, really blazed some trails with that. Well, um, again, you're making it up as you go along. Yeah. Um, we, you know, I was told on Wednesday morning, I think I was going to be making this video on the Sunday. Um, the next From few Bob? days, the Bob next Gilbert? few days, Yes, from uh, Bob Geldof. And the next few days, you're just trying to blag all the gear and the equipment and the film and everything for free. And uh, so you say to Bob, well, um, 
so what's going to happen on Sunday morning? And he says, well, we hope we're going to start at whatever the time was, 10 o'clock in the morning. And you think, hmm, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, you're asking a bunch of pop stars to show up for free. After and, probably being out till four or five. Yep. So you have no idea how it's going to develop and nothing's happening. So you just walk outside with the cameras and hope somebody's going to show up and nobody shows up and nobody shows up. And then suddenly they all start arriving and um, you just keep rolling the camera. You just roll the camera and you, well, I'll figure it out later. Um, and quite obviously when you're doing something like that, uh, people want to see Boy George, they want to see George Michael, they want to see Sting, they want to see Bono. So really, you just say, you see that guy singing over there? Make sure he's in focus. And then you'll cut it together later. And of course, the cutting together later happens the very next day, because it's Sunday. And back in those days, you're shooting with film. And I had to deliver the video by Tuesday morning. The film was processed on the literal night. films back then. Sure. It was real. I drove the film to the, to the lab on Sunday night after the shoot, picked the film up on Monday morning, took it to the uh, post house to get the film transferred, edited it on all the way through Monday night and delivered it on Tuesday morning. Wow. So that the, so that the promotions person could take it into the meeting for top of the pops which is all, which always happened at one o'clock on Tuesday lunchtime. So that video had to be shown to Michael Hurl, who's in charge of Top of the Pops, to convince him that this should be played before Top of the Pops on the Thursday evening. Um, and as I'd mentioned earlier, the show is actually produced on Wednesday. So from one week of, of having the meeting the previous Wednesday to the next Wednesday, um, that was the entire production time, including showing it, getting it promoted, getting it on the TV, and then uh, David Bowie announcing it when it was announced on Top of the Pops. So 1984 was early in your career. Um, certainly had a lot of good experience under your belt, obviously nothing compared to the next 10, 20 years and so on. But at that moment, when you're shooting around, I'm sure you had multiple cameras, probably five, eight cameras, who knows? Um, did you say to yourself, really two cameras. two cameras man you're good um did you say to yourself this is going to be a beast to edit but i got something really good here well you don't know i mean this is this is the thing is that as you the more you do you you know sometimes you think you've done something which is really really good and it really resonates with you and when you show it to other people, they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So even with that star power. Yeah, I mean, you just don't know because you don't know how it's going to uh, affect people. And um, on some level, you have to be dispassionate about it mm. because you have to be able to look at it and you go, you know what, this close up isn't working or this shot is slightly out of focus and I think it it takes the viewer out of the picture or conversely even though the shot is out of focus it's one of the crucial members of the shoot so it has to go in and you as you gain more experience you know you travel through the world and people come up to you and you say oh that video you did for so-and-so changed my life 
and you go, wow, really? That video, huh? I didn't think it was very good. <laughs> so, you know, one man's meat is another man's poison. Um, you know, uh, it's whatever they said in that movie, the world is divided into two types of people. Those people who like Neil Diamond and those people who don't. So um, you have to accept that some of the people will not appreciate what you do and some of the people will love it. And the focus always has to be about the music by and large. You know, the, that's what a music video is there for, is to show you the viewer the pictures that go with the music. And for many of us who were around before music video, we've invented our own pictures for certain pieces of music. Uh, and, and then if you see pictures laid over that music, it can destroy your vision of the music or enhance it. So it's very interesting thing to be working on. It's fascinating with all the moving, <clears throat> excuse me, all the moving parts. Uh, were you very cautious and were you told to be very cautious? with the shooting of the video, more importantly with the post about how many times Sting or Boy George or Bob Geldof would be seen. Nobody was there. It was just <laughs> me on my own. Well, that's great. It's just like, you know what, Nigel, that tape needs to be done by breakfast time on Tuesday morning. Make Get it, it done. Happen. Bye. <laughs> so you just got, I mean, it's also quite simple for a video like that in that you want to see sting in the picture when he's singing it you know it's it's the very simple rule number one of making a music a, a, a film involving music if there's somebody seeing singing let's see their face and then the the group shot at the end um i mean god it's 40 years or however many years ago it is now um you just you get the best pictures if somebody's smiling or they're singing and if it's sting or whoever you put them in. And there was also a big issue that um, we were very disappointed. Bob was particularly disappointed that so few black artists wanted to be involved. I so that, sure. We, we, he was uh, very persuasive and he managed to get Cool and the gang who were in the country at the time. We were actually on the way to the airport, I think and Jody Watley to show up. So, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that those faces <laughs> made it into the video to show that, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of white guys, you know. <laughs> well, it, predominantly it was, it was all UK musicians and artists. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the goal, correct? No, it was just who's available. It was, you know, every, he, rang, he rang everybody up and some people could make it and some people couldn't. And those who weren't able to make it, very interestingly, they were obviously, they were very, very eager to help when it came to Live Aid because they realized they'd missed the boat. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's things like that, that you just, it's like, boy, George is here. I've got to make sure he's on film and he's in focus. And End it's great to see them nowadays. You know, I haven't seen that video in a couple of years, of course, around the holidays, you know, it reverberates around my house and in my car. And but to to look at these young musicians and to think about where they were then and how far they've come. And unfortunately, some of them are not with us right now, which is even sadder. But it just shows you the caliber of um, their artistry and their talent and uh, what was ahead of them, which is always interesting. And again, going back to that established shot, 
that video itself, you're opening whatever that paper is, newspaper, and you hold it open, who was ever holding it open, you get a, a full screen shot of the still of that recording of them all on stage. And there's what, four or five rows of these, you know, some very well-known artists and some artists that are, you know, enshrined in gold now, um, which was amazing because you're setting the viewer up to, okay, this is what's coming your way. Well, the newspaper shot, I, when I left the studio on Sunday night to take my footage to the, to the, uh, the lab, I sent my cameraman off to uh, the Daily Mirror printing works because that was the press shot that was taken that afternoon. So that is the newspaper coming off the presses that wow. night to go to the street on Monday morning. Fantastic. So, um, Literally you know, hot off the presses. Yeah, I mean, quite literally hot off the presses. And when we were there on the day, on the Sunday, um, the first thing that we shot was the big, was that big view of all the people standing there. And about 90 minutes later, that footage had already made its way onto the television. And we all went down into the, there's a coffee room and we saw it on TV. And they, we, the record was the, the, the close-ups, the solo parts, which start the song had not been recorded at that point because we're still in the session and we're all watching it on TV. And somebody turns to somebody else and says, well, if it's on TV, I guess it's happening. <laughs> I mean, and we're still doing it. It's not like, wow, yeah. this is what we did this morning. It was, Fantastic. this is what we did when I made this cup of coffee two hours ago. I mean, At that point, so, had you been around so many household names? Um, I've been around some. Uh, I mean, it, it's very interesting, the star thing. Uh, the basic rule that I have is when you have to spend, you know, a day shooting somebody who's incredibly famous and has an extraordinary career is you try and talk to them about their real life. You know, you say, so um, you've got kids, right? What are they up to? And that everybody in the world wants to talk about their children. Yeah. Bring it I mean, right if down. you go, oh man, that album you did, you know, that saved my life. It was fantastic. And that third track, I love that guitar solo. You can just see them starting to nod yeah, off. Drift off, yeah. Because sure. God bless them. They've heard that a thousand times. Mm. Um, sometimes they're very, very open to talking about it. But if you just um, try and be, you know, interested in their life, in their real life, then that's a good start. There are some people who just don't, you know, it's just don't you know who I think I am and you're never going to break through hmm. that. So you, you just find, have, sorry, just no, have to treat, you just have to treat them with respect. And hmm. um, do you find that you got better footage material and product out of the people that you really connected with? Very often, actually, the best things I've done are for people whose music I don't like very much because I try harder. If, if it's somebody who I'm really enamored of as a musician, I'm so, I've had to teach myself to divorce my emotions from mm. how this person changed my life or how much I love this particular record because it affects my work. So I have to, I have to go, all right, that's another person I can, I can go to that place 
tonight when I go home and I grab a beer. But right now, I have to say, I don't care who you are, who you think you are, you need to do me another take and you really need to focus on this. And most of the time, however snooty they are, they go, yeah, okay, because they recognize that you've been watching, not just, oh man, that was fantastic. Oh, that was great, you know. So um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Nigel Dick is my guest. Nigel, how often do you have to roll back and see what you captured just to make sure it matches your eye? Because I imagine obviously you have honed your ability to see things that most people obviously can't see because you're trained to look for the inaccuracies, look for the continuity, look for the um, synchronized aspects of the flow, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes you have to say to yourself, you know what, I really need to go back and check this out before we move on. Is that commonplace? Um, yes. Uh, of course, you couldn't really do that a number of years ago because it was on film. But then we had these little monitors with a little cassette and you could rewind it. The interesting thing is, is you can do that on set. And you go, yep, it's great. Everything's fantastic. Let's move on to the next deal. And then you look at it in post five days later and you go, oh, my God, how could I miss that, you know, his, his flies were open, <laughs> his jean, you can see yeah, his underwear sure. or whatever. So um, <clears throat> I beg your pardon. Yeah, it's interesting how on the day you miss some things which are quite, quite crucial and you just have to figure a way around it. Do you think it was a, uh, or did you feel, I actually, I know what you're going to say to this because you are such a humble person, which makes you even more likable, Nigel Dick, but I think it was the greatest compliment in 85 when We Are the World came out because you set the stage. Um, well, thank you very much for the compliment, but the, the, the reality of it is that they were in the same situation trying to achieve the same thing. So they were, you know, we, we both came up with the same solution. Um, the interesting thing, the most interesting thing about that is that Bob Geldof went there and he came back and I said to him, you know, how, how did we are the world go? Well, we didn't know what it was called at the time, but how did, how did the, how did it go in LA? And he was, he was fit to be tied because when we did the Band-Aid piece in London, there was no catering. At one point, one of the people, one of the rock stars said, um, where's the food then, Bob? And the whole room went deathly quiet. And he said, you're a fucking pop star. There's a fish and chip shop down the corner. You can go and buy your own fucking lunch. And everybody just sort of went, whoa. Okay. All right. We get them. And it was a really good point. You know, mm. this is about raising money to feed people Absolutely. who are starving in mm -hmm. Africa, guys. So let's not start, you know, you've got a million bucks in the bank. It's a bit, you know, iffy to be asking for a free lunch. And uh, when, when Bob went to L.A. to you know, be part of We Are The World, he came back and he said, you know, there was huge catering, there was security, blah, blah, blah. It was all the things that certainly for him he, he reacted against. You know? Well, you set the stage, and obviously 
it needed to be outdone, whether it was on camera or behind camera uh, to attract those names. I mean, obviously your version had some great names. Um, Stevie Wonder, Bruce, uh, you know, holes, who's who's list of other people for we are the world. And, um, and the song is longer. Uh, it, it's a good song, uh, but I just don't think it has that panache uh, that your Band-Aid video had because I, I just, I have a more commitment, much more commitment and interest. And well, the other I, one felt like, you know what? I'm hanging in here for a payoff. And well, I never I mean, really felt like I got rewarded. By that time, there was a Canadian version in production you know, a French version, Every, everybody was doing it. I mean, the, the most important thing is that people were showing up and they were being counted. And, you know, if you have Stevie Wonder, if you have Bruce, if you have Michael Jackson showing up, it means the message is being delivered around the world to people that we need to do something. Um, I just did uh, an interview just like this just before Christmas with three of the other people who were involved in making Band-Aid, one of which was Midyear, and he told us that to this day, and it's, you know, as I say, over 30 years later, the Band-Aid Trust is still making quarter of a million pounds a year, which is paying for food, schools, education, um, and that's that really at the end of the day is the most that's important the and extraordinary thing. You know, um, I did whatever it was, 48 hours, 56 hours worth of work one weekend back in 1984. And it's still contributing to money being made, which is going to people who need help. If I never do anything the rest of my life, you know, that I... It's a win. I can, uh, you know, I wish I could do more. So um, we should all be so lucky to be in a position where we can help other people in that way. Um, so, uh, and it, it crossed boundaries. Uh, my mother, who hated rock and roll, despised everything I did, went out and bought two copies of the record. Mom's so, got good taste. Yeah. I mean, I don't suppose she ever played it, but... <laughs> That's not the point. It's probably you know, worth more now because it's still in the cellophane. Yeah, yeah. So, um, not yeah, your dick. That, that's the bottom line. With your work with Band-Aid and the, over 600 videos and productions and shorts and uh, screenplays, we're going to get to all these other vast scopes of your work. And I know you're a humble guy and I have to preface this, but you have to realize, I'm going to say it for you, that your work has... Certainly that wasn't your goal. Your goal was to do something you're passionate for. You loved film. Um, you couldn't get the work as a draftsman, as an architect, <laughs> delivery man. Yes, you did well at that, but it was you know, a crap job. Of course, you didn't want to excel in that. So you, you went where the money wasn't and you found the money or the money found you. But you have to realize that your work, indelible as it is, changed the way a culture saw and heard music. And that, after Band-Aid's mission complete should be the second thing boop, that you realize that you are responsible for doing. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, very often you, you find yourself on set and the client is sitting next to you and they, um, 
and of course they're responsible to the the band's manager or the label or whatever you know because huge amounts of money are being invested in this artist's future and they lean into you and they say uh this is going to be an award winner right and you're like I have no idea. Then you lean back and you go, this is going to win at five awards, correct? I mean, all you can do when you get up in the morning is to do your best work. Yeah. You know, I mean, as we're speaking this morning, <laughs> um, the Oscars, the Oscar nominations have been released. And there's a bunch of people right now going, whoa, I've been nominated. And there's a bunch of people like Lady Gaga, sadly, who are going, I spent nine months on this thing. I did everything I could. And obviously people didn't like it. What you have to do when you get up every day, when you're doing the kinds of jobs that we do is to do the best work that you can. And most importantly, learn from your mistakes. So, um, you know, if I was working as a carpenter, I'd want to make sure you know, I've built something mm -hmm. that's solid, is going to last. Plum, sure. And I'm proud of the work and the drawers come in and out nice and smoothly and then move on and do it all over again. And it doesn't matter if you're a truck driver, if you're washing dishes in a restaurant, and I've pretty much done all these jobs. Um, it's pride. You know, you get up in the morning and just say, today I'm going to do the best job I can. Mm -hmm. And that's all that anybody can ask from you. And some of it will click and some of it won't. I've got stuff that I've shot, which I love, which I adore and go back and watch time and time again. And nobody else has seen it. Uh, but you just, uh, that's the way it is. But it warms your soul. And that's what it's about. So it seems like the MTV Awards, the Billboard Awards, the Grammy nominations are nice. And that's as far as it is, and you move on. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, somebody uh, a couple of months ago said something very nice to me uh, uh, about, you know, all the trophies on the in the trophy cabinet and whatnot. And my response, uh, my rather English response is, yep, but it doesn't make me a better person. You know, um, what makes you a better person is giving way at the traffic junction to the car coming the other way is you know if somebody's dropped something in the supermarket pick it up and give it back to them that those are the things that really separate you from from the rest and yeah. Yeah. um i hey i love getting awards i'm like everybody else are you kidding me i mean it's great to get that trophy but eventually, you know, you just get to a point where it actually, on some le level, it, you just have to ignore it. Mm. I'm doing a job tomorrow. I've got to make sure it's the best it can be. What the last, the job I did last week, what did I get wrong? All right. I didn't get the folk. I didn't get the depth of field right on that shot. So I've got to make sure I can do it right next week. And another example of your humanitarian work and philanthropy is when you heard about the Shine Music Festival, the first of its kind in Denver, Colorado, where I had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time. And um, it was a phenomenal event on many levels, the first inclusive event for everyone, especially for persons with disabilities. So what drew you to that event? Because you really didn't have a connection, but you read about it. Um, 
I just saw on Facebook, you know, can anybody help out? And um, it was a Sunday, I, you know, I didn't have anything scheduled. I have a bunch of cameras. Um, so I just rang up and said, you know, where do I show up? What well, do you that need? speaks volumes about your character. Yeah, but I mean, we should all do that. Yeah. You know, oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I mean um, it's, I'm not a, I'm not Amish, but I know, you know, Amish people, if somebody needs a, a barn building, everybody in the community shows up and builds the barn. So, um, you know, on some levels, I've, I've done things which I re regret great, greatly in my life. And, you know, when you get the opportunity to do something for the community, it doesn't cost you anything. Hmm. Well, it yeah. cost me the price of a hot dog, you know, during the afternoon. But I mean, so, um, yeah, and it was this lovely sunny day and I got to meet people like yes. yourself. It was exquisite. And, um, you know, I went home, I came home and I was uh, shagged out after a long squawk, as John Cleese would say. And, um, you know, I went to bed and, yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's a good day. Yeah, you felt good about yourself and so did I and, and so did the uh, thousands of attendees. And, and your wife was blessed with a, uh, a bracelet that my daughter yeah, yes, made yes, for yes, yes, which is, <laughs> so uh, many people. And we're happy is, to say 2022 is going to have another Shine Festival in Denver. Um, how did you meet uh, Mrs. Nigel? Uh, online. Oh, I love it. Interesting. So, there you go. Is she a rocker at heart? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, she used to write about music for the LA Times for a number of years. Uh, we just watched the Motley Crue movie the other night, Dirt. And uh, she actually interviewed Motley Crue at one point. She, she told me that uh, uh, she went, they said, you know, before you write the article for the LA Times, you better come and listen to the record. So she goes down to the studio and the band are there. And she had to sit through the whole album at the desk with the band sitting behind her. That's tough. And, um, and she, she was a punk fan. She used to have a huge mohawk. So- um, We're gonna have to post that picture. Uh, I, I think you better ask permission first. Um, and um, yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, yeah. The so you're beauty, aligned entertainment wise, music wise. Yeah, I mean, she understands what I do for a living because what I do, what I do for a living, the way it happens, the hours, the travel is crazy. And, and any normal person doing a nine to five job would not understand it at all. You know, how you can get a phone call at well one one morning i woke up at eight o'clock in the morning you know can you get on a plane to paris at four o'clock this afternoon i've got a job for you what terminal yeah that's exactly. the only answer right yep what would you have given to be on maybe 25 percent of the music video sets that nigel dick has been part of wow incredible story right well that's part one I hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be next week. We get into more grit of video making, the politics, the production aspect, and so much more. Nigel Dick next week. Hey, it's Mark Farrell. Thank you so much for hanging with me this Thursday. Gary knows next. My name is Mark Farrell. Let's do it again real soon. Keep living and laughing. Have a great day.
Insight with Mark Farrell. Check out this and all Insight shows on the Insight page at prn.fm. prn.fm. Have Mark speak at your company, your kid's school or college. Mark speaks on critical topics that affect kids and adults everywhere, from anti-bullying, mental health, drugs and alcohol, to overcoming adversity. Visit markfarrellmotivation.com for more info. Insight, Thursday mornings at 11 on the Progressive Radio Network. Network.